0: Welcome to Counter Stories, our favorite time of the day, a podcast by people of color for people of color and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. We are missing one crew member today, Halili, who normally would be with us, and she is unable to be with us today, but we have two fabulous guest speakers that we will be introducing in just a minute. I'll turn it over to the rest of the crew.
1: I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group. And member of the Malaspina and Indians.
2: And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark A.M.E. Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group.
0: And now I'm going to turn it over to our amazing guests. Here, uh, we're going to start with uh, Daniel. And uh, Daniel, you've been with us before. Uh, please share with our listeners who you are, what role that you play, and uh, any comments that you want to make along those lines.
3: Thank you, Luz and Anthony for having me again and Don. Uh, I'm Daniel Perez. I'm a school social worker at a Minneapolis Public School Elementary. And I'm a proud dad of two boys. And yeah, definitely um, wanna say that I've been undocumented. I'm now a dual citizen. And so I bring that perspective of what it means to have been living in the shadows um, and sometimes, sometimes afraid and now Really tapping into my privilege of being a U.S. citizen, and how do I u- utilize that power and privilege to better this world?
0: And then we have another fabulous speaker, and her le- her surname might might give you a little bit of a preview as to who she is, and we can unpack that a little bit more. Uh, go ahead, Alana.
4: Hi, thank you, Luz. I'm Alana Galloway. I uh, am an organizer with the IFO Interfaculty Organization, and I'm a union union activists and labor activists and a a black woman with two children. And I do happen to be married to um, Anthony Galloway. (laughs) (laughs) That is the best part of this program
0: today. We've never done that before. We're close to nine years of of hosting Counter Stories. And I was just tickled and delighted to hear that you'd be joining us uh, and holding your own as your own professional being and the incredible work that you do in community. So thank you for joining us, Alana. And um, we've talked about your brilliant kids so many times. And, you know, to have uh, this come full circle with you being uh, on our program is something that's really giving me a lot of joy. And I hope that it gives our listeners as much joy as, as it's giving me right now. Thank you. So, today's uh, subject uh, is going to center on labor and the labor movement. And we've had so many uh, various touch points uh, recently in our society, both nationally as well as locally, where the labor movement is is really front and center in conversations. I'll begin by just high level um, nationally. You, you couldn't turn on uh, radio or TV in the last week or so and not hear about what happened in New York uh, with the labor union. It was history making uh, by many, many accounts. Um, and it was the first time that a union was formed within Amazon's 27 year history. And we know that Amazon is, is a is a major presence in our economy as an employer, as you know, an entity as a corporation, all the revenue that comes in and out. Um, and then they have its union uh, be established in New York, which just has another set of dynamics there in terms of new york and and the number of people are there. But the demographics of new york, let's be let's be really honest there. Uh, the number and percentages of BIPOC uh, folks living in New York is, is huge. So um, I'm gonna, I want to I want to start there, and then we're going to bring it in local uh, with regard to the strikes, um, one that was averted by St. Paul Public Schools, and then of course the two-week strike in Minneapolis um, Public Schools, but then also just strikes with regard to the Hennepin County uh, Public Defenders. But let's let's first go around. And hear from your perspective how the news uh, affected you when you heard about Amazon unionizing in New York. What did that come up? How did that come up for you? What struck you? uh, And uh, where do you see this going forward?
4: Well, I think, you know, myself I was really excited about it because I know that this has been a long hard fight. Um th- this is the beginning still of a long hard fight of unionization at Amazon. Um Amazon has been found to be guilty of being um of of breaking the pro- the law in terms of allowing um <clears throat> organizing in their in their workplace. Um One thing also that was really interesting to me is that they didn't have um, Teamsters come in and organize them. They didn't have um, the big AFL-CIO unions come in and organize them. They organized themselves, right? Uh, This was a campaign that was fully done by the workers in Amazon, which is so amazing. And like you said, Luz, you know, just the demographics are so important. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing this worker power um, at Amazon and, and in the and across the country at the same time as we're seeing this these big um, these big campaigns for civil rights and human rights for people of color for black folks for indigenous folks um, we've seen in the past right that one of the one of the big bodies that works well in civil rights and human rights activities is labor. Right. And so these two, these two, um, these two movements happening so largely at the same time, it works for me and it makes sense for me because, um, because they can, they can be, they work so well together.
0: Nice. Yeah. And and in fact, on the demographics, I, um, I want to call out that New York City um, is just shy of 43% white. So it's 42.73% white, which means it's majority non-white. A big, big revelation for us to take into account. And of course, we've got a a uh, very large presence in Shakopee with regard to Amazon warehouse as well, where we have a high demographic of Somali uh, workers um, at that plant. Let's keep going with this discussion in terms of just reactions. Uh, Daniel and uh, Don and, and Anthony, I want you to weigh in as well. What struck you when you heard and saw the news with regard to the union um, unionization out in, in New York?
2: Yeah,
3: great question, Luz. I think for me, what struck me, it's like, not not only was I really excited about the um, unionization of workers in Amazon, but I think for me, the really astonishing piece is the amount of money that Amazon slash Jeff Bezos spent on busting uh, this, you know, uh, worker power. And I think if people know, like people, unions are great. But I think people unionize when labor and working conditions are horrible, where pay is not um, a living wage and where working conditions are deplorable. And so just to just just to hear and to find out how much money was spent on actually not really giving people better lives and better working conditions and better pay um, it's just a little bit unnerving, uh, but it's not new. But it's still unnerving, uh, just the, you know, white supremacy behind it, the, the, the wanting to uh, hoard power and control and really oppress people who are the ones who actually give profits to Amazon. And so I think for me that that's really been in my mind at the astronomical amount of money spent on not actually providing better working conditions and better pay for workers.
0: And I think to your point, Daniel, I, I read uh, over $4.3 million have been spent by Amazon in terms of their union busting activities, right? Um, Don, what's coming up for you?
1: I think what, what, what comes to mind for me is that um, how, how disengaged many of us in society are from the ideas of unions, <clears throat> And what I mean by that is, uh, I went to Minneapolis public schools, and yeah, I'm a. i pro- am I was born in the '50s, so I went to school in the late '50s, early '60s, and but we were still hearing stories about unions. Now, Minneapolis was the site back in the '30s of a huge union uh, dispute where union workers were actually shot and killed by Minneapolis police. And um, I mean, that's huge. We were still hearing those lessons in school or I was picking it up. I mean, so unions uh, to me were something that that I was knowledgeable about and grew up knowing about unions. I think in the past 30, 40 years that has waned and. I think that that, you know, the idea of a 40 hour work week with a break, with lunch, with all those things were all items that were fought. And people died for us to have those kind of things that unions brought about. Um, And for me, so for me, you know, in the past 20 years. I think I've witnessed more efforts to break unions than I have seen efforts to strengthen unions or to start new ones. So in that regard, I think that um, because it was not only Amazon that hit the news, but it was the fact that um, a few Starbucks locations all we, um, also unionized and you know while they're not as while each location is nowhere close to rivaling um Amazon and in their big warehouses the fact that these you know 10 to 15 to 20 folks in one small location are fighting to unionize was sending a a loud message and so i you know we can't take for granted especially when we look at, I think, some of the discrepancies that we can see between what the CEOs and others of these companies are making to the salary of, of an average worker. I mean, back in the 50s, 60s, it was, you know, it. we expect them to get paid more, but I think, you know, the ratio maybe have only been 10 to 1 or 15 to 1 back then. Now I can't even pull a number out of my hat and I'm sure Luz, while I'm talking you're you're probably looking this up so that you can tell us what that you <laughs> also got, got two to, two folks who may know that data as well. Who may who may know it, who who know what that uh incredible gap is. I mean it's it's astronomical, it's mind-blowing. And um and yet they fight to prevent people from unionizing. So in that regard, I think historically Um, I think it's a lesson that that needs to be conveyed to younger workers who um, may not realize or understand, I think, the strength or what unions can really bring to them. So for me, I think that's that's kind of what I got out of this.
4: Yeah. So this is a lot. Again, you know, I. I think last time I heard it was about three hundred to one, the CEO to worker pay, um, and and that brought that that up to me too, um, Don. When when we were talking about when Luz was talking about how much money Amazon spent suppressing this this union movement at Amazon, that's nothing to Jeff Jeff Bezos. That four point three million dollars is nothing compared to what he's making, you know, and so. And so it's it's not about making sure that this one worker doesn't get ahead or that these even hundred workers don't get ahead. It's making sure that they can have as much work with and pay as little for it as possible. You know, we've, we've moved from the Walmart, right? Ten years ago, this discussion was about Walmart and about how, you know, Walmart workers were the biggest users of... Um, of the social safety net, right, of of welfare and stuff like that, while Walmart was just raking in all the cash. And I, I haven't seen those numbers for Amazon, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was similar.
2: You know, this... This, this is this always brings up and you know I've gotta I, I, I gotta wrap my head around this in a household with somebody who 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 works in this in this space but I also have in the in the, in, the, in the side of my mind the complicated history for folks of color and 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 unions and one of the things that I've learned but not just from my wife who's will we'll, will we'll run the numbers for you historically for for unions but 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 also the significance of of the, the the gentleman who was leading the charge uh, in New York, all right, the, the role of people of color in labor unions cannot be overlooked, especially when we've got a complicated history. You know, at one point, you know, uh, labor unions were systemically keeping people of color out. At the same time that there are areas, you know, uh, local playwright James Austin Williams, um, you know, talks about this when he writes a play about his grandfather who was assassinated because the union um, and the uh, and the company both wanted the black workers, um, and there was this complicated thing where, or excuse me, not not both, sorry, the company itself wanted to keep its black u- black workers after the depression when. Historically, black jobs that were dangerous and and could get you killed quickly all of a sudden became open market to white workers, but but the union policies wouldn't allow. You know, they, the, the union's like, I'm not about to 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 you know. There, there's this conflict about being in the side of laborers, and the union unions in that area were much were were basically quiet to the assassination and, and terror rained upon black workers to vacate their jobs. So. Uh, and then receive promises from unions to be able to fill them with white uh, white workers. And so there is this tension there. And so I think it just is is part of the nuance and the complication of this moment that now we're seeing labor unions collectively bargaining for the rights of all workers. Again, an area where if you let folks of color, um, you know, if folks of color at the front line advocating, everybody seems to benefit. Huh? Go figure. Have we talked about that before? And so I, I think those are some important nuance pieces to to be on the table as we unpack this
0: yeah absolutely. and and thank you for for introducing that Anthony. that's that's uh, one of the the paths that I wanted to take us on is not only the role that we've played historically, but then also um, wanted to hear from both daniel and and Alana with regard to how. Um, and i'm going I'm just going to be truthful on this, how sometimes, in with some unions, in some situations, they begin to espouse the concerns of bipoc workers mm-hmm. in theory and in, 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 in you know um by way of platforms, but then the actual practicality of it. In terms of benefiting our our BIPOC communities does not align with that. So uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, And then I also am wondering, you know, there might be some listeners who really don't understand the role that each of you play and continue to play. So um, if I can have you go down that path on both grounds, first centering our listeners, what what does it look like for you, and how have you been involved in your own circle? But then, from that, speak to the point of how sometimes some unions, you know, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna use us in a way for their gain, but not in practicality in terms of the benefit that actually come to BIPOC workers.
3: Oh, man, that's such a big question. And I'm glad that you're asking it. Um, So, you know, to center the listeners, I'll say, so I'm Daniel Perez, a school social worker with Minneapolis Public Schools, and I'm part of a union, the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, 59, um, which is composed of two chapters, uh, education support professionals, and then the teacher side. Um, And so, Uh, On the media, for the last month, we have been all over the news throughout the country because Minneapolis Public Schools or like the union, the teacher union and ESP union went into a strike uh, for about three weeks, 14 days. And um, I was part of the bargaining team uh, negotiating the the contract with Minneapolis Public Schools. And so to kind of just give an overview and, and keep it broad, I'll say that um, it was the first time in our union's history where both the ESP chapter, the, the educational support professionals, and the teacher chapter were bargaining together at the table. Um, in the past, MPS wanted to bargain separately, and we said no. And I will say that the bargaining team uh, was predominantly BIPOC, Um, It was black and indigenous and people of color and also immigrant. Um, And so we were very, very diverse in every single way from income, uh, gender, race, you name it. And so I say this because um, I was very conscientious of the way in which unions have often uh, promoted and and fought for workers' rights, um, but at the same time, you know, leaving some folks behind, especially those of us not super close to white or whiteness. Um, and so I think with this multiracial group, we were leading the charge um, in negotiations and what we bargained for and what, what we actually won. And I think to your point and Anthony's point, when people of color are leading the charge, we make sure no one gets left behind. Um, and we also know that one strike is not going to, Uh, solve every single historical problem, right? White supremacy is still alive and well. Capitalism is still alive and well. Uh, Our racial history is still alive and well. And so I think for for me, just coming out of this movement and this strike, I'm reminded of the importance of having not only allies, but for people of color to be leading the charge in what we actually want and need because we we have it worst. Um, This is not Oppression Olympics. And... We have it worse. That's the reality of things. When you compare, compare you know, uh, health outcomes and wealth and housing and job prospects and income, like you can't escape th- those realities. So um, I will I'm a huge advocate for actually people of color leading the work. Um, in in the strikes and the labor movement.
0: Thank you for that, Daniel. And I, I we had a guest right at the uh, pro, you know the precipice of the Minneapolis public school teacher strike, and we heard about um, you know last one hired first one out, uh, and how that would um, detrimentally and disparately impact BIPOC employees. Can you? Can you just tell us how that landed and and whether you made progress on that uh, provision? And just be clear for our listeners, our guest was talking about doing all this work so that that would not be the ultimate outcome, meaning, you know, the district has worked hard, community members have worked hard to get BIPOC folks infused into the uh, Minneapolis public schools infrastructure, both as teachers and support folks and just across the board. And trying not to then undo that by giving life to the last one hired, first one out.
3: Yes. So I won't get into all the details and go down a rabbit hole. But to sum it up, I will say, yes, I'm really excited that you asked. Because originally, there was a two-year language around protecting educators of color. And then we as a union and many black and brown people leading the work, we advocated for actually contract language, uh, which is permanent it's permanent uh, contract language was definitely uh, agreed upon uh, by both the union and MPS around protecting educators of educators of color, uh, not only probationary, which other districts like St. Louis Park and Robinsdale have done. Um, but um, but actually any teacher um, and, and actually helping um, educators of color, whether they're, you know, in, early in their career or later in their career, just continue being within Minneapolis public schools. And I will add for us, it wasn't just about addressing LIFO, you know, last in first out, Um, but it was also about, um, like we know that in Minneapolis public schools, black educators are almost eight times more likely to be fired than a white teacher. For people of color who are non-black, it's over four times more likely to be fired than a white teacher. So we have a systemic issue within Minneapolis Public Schools who does the hiring and the firing. Um, and so we also added contract language around anti-racist, anti-bias, a proposal to really try to hold MPS and the union accountable. And so that's as m- many details as I'd like to share just because we have you know, other guests, but I can say that, yes, we were able to address some of those um, historical impacts against uh, people of color.
0: You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with co-hosts Dan Eubanks and Anthony Galloway with special guests Daniel Perez and Alana Galloway. This show is supported by Amper's and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit Counterstories.com.
1: So, Daniel, I'm. I got. I got a. Well, I have maybe a couple questions and 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 uh and some some reaction, I guess, because I'm. You know, as I said, I'm a product of Minneapolis schools. So, you know, while this was happening, uh I'm going to tie this together. I always do. So, WCCO just released some footage that they found, you know, and their big thing was that in this footage there was there they had captured an image of young Prince. Um for many of us, I mean, while that was nice, for many of us, um we, yeah, you know, in 1970, I was a sophomore at Minneapolis North, having graduated from Lincoln Junior High School. A lot of that footage was in front of Lincoln, where Prince, Ronnie Kitchen, and some other kids were there. And there were pictures of teachers, teachers that taught us at Lincoln that were on strike in the 70s. Um, So historically, because, you know, they were tying the two together because it had been that long since the um, uh, Minneapolis teachers have been on strike. So while I supported the strike, there are still a couple of, uh, you know, we still have some of the largest disparities in terms of uh, not only lack of educational outcomes for student bipoc students and and native american and indigenous populations not not just in educational outcomes but we have huge disparities in the number of children bipoc children and indigenous children who are who are expelled suspended from school and and so while a part of me is is supportive of teachers getting what they should get because I taught for eight nine years at metro I know how tough it is and and this is with adults, okay, but I know how tough it is in that classroom, and um let alone having to to deal with you know some of the behavioral things that kids just naturally bring. Um, So I know how tough it can be, and I know that funding has been going in the wrong direction. And then you throw in COVID, and it just, I'm sure, it has exacerbated this problem to no end. But at the same time, we still have those disparities, right? So the very mechanism, because I'm really interested in how how you guys were successful in maintaining, cause, you know, the, the phrase that I heard, it was, you know, uh, last hired, first fired. And, and, uh, you know, and that, that is a union thing because uh, unions are built on seniority. So if historically, and I agree with Anthony, we have been, we, you know, historically we've been excluded from those unions. Right. And then we weren't let in until during after the civil rights, (laughs) the 60s and the 70s. And um, so, you know, you don't have to go into detail, but that was one thing I couldn't I couldn't wrap my mind around is how you were successful in retaining those teachers of color without undoing that seniority, that all important seniority roster. That kind of is the glue that hang unions together. I mean, there's no offense about it. That seniority that seniority roster is important. Um, so I guess that's my you know, because even I just retired from, and I was a member of the IFO. Um, and you see all those dynamics in play, right? Well, you know, there aren't that many um, teachers of color even in higher education. So I was one of few. And then to be active in the I of o, um, you know, there were some roadblocks. I was starting to get active <laughs> right before I, I retired. I actually became a grievance officer um, in order to learn more about the union and to take more of a role as a professor of color. Because there weren't that many um, while I was there at, at Metropolitan State University. So
3: I'll weigh in quickly because as I heard you talk, I'm like, yes, I can pull out the tentative agreement uh, that we passed so I can I can give you some language. It's complicated because there's the, you know, um, accessing, which means say I'm at Green Central Elementary and say my position's cut. Being excess means I still have a job within the Minneapolis Public Schools It's not on my site anymore, but I'm still hired by the district. And then there's the process of recalling, which is if, you know, my principal wants me back on my site and there's more money, they can bring me back. And then there's the layoff, um, which is basically saying you don't have a job in Minneapolis public schools anymore. So I'll keep it simple because what we were able to, to do is really address LIFO and still maintain seniority in some way, shape, or form. And so if I talk about accessing, just to keep it simple, our contract, our tenet of agreement says for the next budget cycle, if a teacher is being accessed and that teacher is a member of a population underrepresented, and we created a definition about who underrepresented is, which is people of color, among licensed teachers, not just probationary, anyone, Um, The district, in this case, Minneapolis Public Schools, shall access the next least senior teacher. So not, you know, the most senior, but the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population uh, for the reasons provided in the article with the definition that I mentioned. So I think that's how we were able to get around it, uh, because we also know that many places have public education as a target to then turn it into profitable places, right? And all these metrics and all of these things. And so we wanted to say, how can we protect educators of color while still maintaining the integrity of seniority as much as possible? Because I will tell you on my contract, I'm very costly now to MPS. And so if MPS just went ahead and undid seniority altogether, they just want Cheaper labor, people of color who are super cheap, but those of us at the top of the scale now are going to be pushed out. So we are very conscientious that it's a both and, right, about how do we actually get people of color in the door? But then when we become the senior people, we are not um, being pushed out because we're more expensive,
0: All right, Alana. You've been so patient, my dear. So I'm going to just review the quick questions with you again, uh, help our listeners and ourselves understand the role that you play, but also historically, just, you know, your growth within the union movement as a leader. Uh, And then what your observations have been with regard to, at some point, some unions, and I'm not saying anyone in particular that we're speaking of now, because we want to make sure we we protect the integrity of of um, your roles um, in in calling and and leveraging our our needs as BIPOC members, but not delivering for us. Um, so I, I know you've got a wealth of
4: information to
0: share with us.
4: So I uh, I started with I I worked at AT and T for about fifteen. 15- 13 years, um, and I was a member of, um, I was a member of CWA 7250, which I uh, still kind of call my home union because it's the union that raised me. You know, like Don said, um, in the fifties, you may have learned about unions in schools in the eighties and nineties. I did not, I, I didn't hear anything about unions in school. So, you know, my, my, my mother was a teacher. My father was a, a police officer and that's a whole nother discussion, um, But they were both union members. um, And we'll talk about we can talk about what what being a a black union member in the police officers confederation looks like. Um, And so when I when I I knew that they were members of the of unions and I knew that there were kind of positive and negative Statements about unions out there, but I didn't know what it was. And so just to just to kind of give that context, because I want to make sure everybody understands what a union is, right? It's it's a body that kind of leverages power. Um, and it the, the union members who are the workers for an organization or for, you know, in an industry control the labor in that organization or in that industry. And so, you know, the teachers, um control the the teaching labor the and the educational support labor so that you know the so there's the employer and there's the the consumer and in between there's this this very necessary um body of the workers and so we have to understand that that when we stand together as workers and we make a decision we and we control the labor, we say we won't work if we don't have this condition met, and so that's what the that's what we saw in Minneapolis this last month um, and so the union also negotiates contracts um between the employer. And the workers, and so that—that that is all things that I never understood until I started. I started working at AT and T, and I became a member of Communications Workers Communication Workers of America, um, and and I and what really attracted me to that work wasn't um, wasn't the the work for the workers that they did, but the work in the communities that they did. Uh, I saw my union uh, really fighting against. Um, the the constitutional amendments that were going on in minnesota in about 2012 uh about um voter suppression and the and marriage equality and i saw that my union was working in that regard and that's what drew me to the union and not because i i never found myself i never identified as a communication worker right but i identified as a person who had people who i loved who would be um impacted by these by these by these campaigns that were going on. And when CWA was working on in that, that's how I first became involved in the union. Then I under, began to understand how, what it meant to be, um, what what the workers' rights aspect of it was. Um, and so I was uh, a steward and a activist and a, and a eventually a chief steward in, in my union. Um, I heard Don say that he was a grievance officer in the IFO and I was kind of a a grievance officer was one of, was what I did as a steward. Um, and then recently I started working at, uh, IFO, the Interfaculty organization. We represent the faculty at the Minnesota State Universities. Um, and I, and we are working toward getting more power, getting more power amongst our members, getting more members engaged. Um, and that's, that's what I do. Um, the history, in terms of of unions, is really interesting, especially as it pertains to race. Right? We know that uh, that at the beginning of the labor movement, um, when at the, of the American labor movement, when workers, when white workers were banding together to fight against their employers, many of those employers brought in black workers when they were, when, when the white workers would strike, they brought in Chinese workers when the white workers would strike. And because the white workers would not include those, those populations in their movement, it didn't, it, 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 It wasn't there was no reason, right, for these these workers of color to band together with white workers. We've seen this over and over in in the labor movement and in different movements when um, when. When we finally start including people, when we finally start making sure that all the people are involved and all the people are at the table, then the people have the power, right? When we were, when we were segmented, when it was white workers and, and it still is in many ways, right? But in the, um, in the early labor movement, when it was like white workers could join these unions and the, if you, if you know history of like the AFL-CIO, there's really, um, the AFL-CIO were two different organizations that eventually banded together. But one was like professional workers. One was um, very much white white folks, and one the other one was people of color. People who were called unskilled labor. Um, and mean, I guess on the podcast, you won't see my labor, my air quotes, but, you know, folks who were called, quote unquote, unskilled labor. And they found that eventually when these two bodies came together, that's when they figured out that this was where the power was, because they were really including more people. And over the years, you know, over the years... Um, We've seen where more and more people are being considered labor. You know, we, we there's been a um, like the fight for 15. There's folks are which is, you know, the fight for a, a living wage, um, specifically at places that we that may be called unskilled labor, which very recently, right? We just found out was called actually essential workers, right? <laughs> so we've called these people both unskilled and essential within a couple years, and um, and so you know the labor movement now is reaching out to these people in a way that um that hasn't been done before, really well in a really great way, and so um, I kind of got going. I'm sorry. You better run. I I got I got myself wound up. But you know, um so we're seeing more and more that when we engage more people, we get more power. And and that just like that math really works for me, right? That just more people equals more power to those people. And so, you know, um it's so important that we just find more people to engage in this labor movement and that, you know, and right now, the as I said earlier, we're seeing um workers this worker movement coincide with this with a, with a new civil rights movement that um and i and I know a lot of people who are engaged in both right who who are engaged in uh black lives matter who are engaged in indigenous rights who are engaged in all these different things but also engaged in their workplace because they just have to be right um and so I was actually listening to a podcast recently of i uh, it was um a uh, a labor journalist who said that folks would call him and say i need an I need an organizer i want to organize this workplace that I work in you know this that and nobody's looking at us to organize us, and he can't find organizers for them, you know which is really unfortunate because right now um and in the last couple of years since the pandemic hit, labor has been in a unique position prior to that. And it's still going down, right? Um, at the last numbers that I knew was like 12% of the American work, workforce was unionized, Um and no 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 i'm sorry 9% was the last number that i saw and like i said it keeps it keeps dropping and so um, right now we're seeing this resurgence of uh, starbucks workers amazon workers we're seeing um, we're seeing some places that are unionized taking power that they hadn't taken in any time recently um and so there's a there's we're kind of ripe for that work. We're ripe for organizing in places that haven't been organized before, in places that haven't been um, well regarded before. And again, like we're talking about these places that now we see as essential work, um, and these folks are are ready to be unionized. And unfortunately, we don't have the the um, the structure within the within the labor movement, within the AFL, CIO, or the Teamsters, the, there's no ready apparatus um that that's prepared to take on this this organizing. And so, you know this is part of the reason that the, the Amazon, um, campaign was so exciting it was, like I said, it wasn't the AFL CIO. It wasn't Teamsters. It was just some guy who, and I say that with all the love and respect, right? Um, the guy who had been fired from Amazon and folks who, who supported him and worked with him. And they came together and said, this is not right. We, we see that we have the power. We own this power. We own this work, and we're going to take a, take the power back.
2: I'm sorry. I got to, I'm, And I'm not just doing this because I'm an interested party in 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 in, in giving the kudos. Um, I'm not just. That's a part of it, but not just. But but I want to. I want to. There's so much in what you just said there. Not only running the record, <laughs> right? But just not just running the record, so that we can see the context. But but one of the things that 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 you demonstrate clearly is the power that happens when we come together. I want us to remind us that, you know, a lot of folks who may be detractors of collective bargaining or folks marching their power together. I mean, there's a reason why we band together to go into um, health plans as a greater, bigger unit, why you get a better price. Right. And so we get that piece of it, but there's also that, that, that data that shows that non-union um, um. You know, uh, the decline in labor unions also correlates to the decline in wages for non-union workers. And so and and so if we want to talk about the, the mix that erodes wages over time and leads us into the places where 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 companies are wondering why they can't get and we talked about the Great Recession in one of our podcasts, but we're part of the contributing piece to that is that there hasn't been a body that have held uh employers accountable to paying folks at a particular market, market wage. And then of course, you get mad when they turn around and walk away from you. Well, 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 you you've you've allowed yourself to get into a space where you're out of touch with reality. I wanna I want to hearken this. Though for anybody who's listening to that and going, you know, and trying to, to couch some talking point around that, you, you you can't you can't deny that issue, but then praise something like Bacon's Rebellion in 1666 sixty seven, where workers bounded together, white and and African indentures and slaves and all those folks banded banded together to because of the huge gap between the colonial upper class. Um and Don, I I can feel your eyes in the back. I know this is happening on native land. It's already pushing folks on. So let me call that out as well. But I, I just want to show the show the 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 correlation throughout history when folks come together. Dr. King became persona non grata. Why? Because he was organizing in 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 Chicago, in Tennessee, the 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 garbage during the garbage strike. Folks came together to 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 collectivize their power in a just against this gap that seemed to be growing. And we're seeing that yet again. And so I just want to make sure to keep linking these pieces together because Alana just ran the record and 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 we've been running this record since 1666, 67, and even before. And so th- those are some of the things that were just coming up for me as I was listening to her just lay well, it out.
0: And some folks, even <laughs> despite the amount of times that the record has been played over the last 400 years, still haven't understood the message, right? Uh, and to your point, with regard to the amount of uh, unions that have been decreasing, and its impact on suppressing the wages, it's also conversely increased the the wealth of all of these big employers, right? So the the disparities between the ratio of what your average worker earns versus what that CEO earns, and let's use Amazon again as an example, because uh, they just unionize. I mean, it's huge, right? I mean, it's it's a fraction of what um, the employer makes on an hourly basis, let alone, you know, globally. Um, and in terms of history, I also want to throw in a nugget with regard to Dr. King working with Cesar Chavez. I mean, Cesar Chavez was organizing with regard to the farm workers in California and the strike uh, and fair working conditions that were just deadly, literally deadly exposure of chemicals to the farm workers. Um, and they were partnering back during the civil rights movement, right? The farm workers uh, movement was seen as a civil rights uh, movement. And Dr. King and Cesar Chavez walked arm in arm. And then historically, in the course of time, in preparation for our segment, the um, I was I was trying to remember the details of a report I heard a, a number of years ago, and I was able to find it that, uh, and you know, in 1903, the American Federation of Labor, uh, working with migrant workers and, and farm laborers, wanted to pit Mexican workers against Japanese sugar beet workers, and and wanted the Max, Mexican uh, workers to agree that the Japanese workers would not be allowed into the union. Um, And the Mexican workers were like, no, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have that. This is not about divide and conquer. This is about us doing this work. And so when we talk about just the power of unity, we also need to understand that it's inherent in in our cultures as as collectivists, right? And we've talked about Mm -hmm. this over so many, many years is Western culture, Anglo culture, is rooted in individualist um, mindsets, and collectivist is where we most of us come from as BIPOC around the world. We're collectivists in nature, and so our mindsets are just very different, and that's why working in unity and working in concert and working in community is so inherently natural for us, culturally speaking, than it is and it's a chasm between how we're growing up with our values culturally versus the dissonance that we see and how we've been indoctrinated by a capitalist society. Uh, very different. Do that. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, you know, that what that brings to mind to me is, you know, we still there's a lot of negotiations that happen. And I'm sure Daniel can speak to this. Um, I, I've never sat at a negotiation table, but, you know, there's a lot of and of two tiered systems, right? If you were hired before this date, you can, you can enjoy this, this uh, benefit, but you know, we're not going to give that to the, to workers who joined us later. And that there's a lot of, there's a lot of that in a lot of contracts, but there's a lot of unions who are standing up now and saying, no, we're not doing that because a lot of it too is, is racial differences. They're not, they're not spelled out in the same way. It's not like the Japanese workers can't be a part of this, but it's, you know, maybe certain certain workers have entered this field more recently right or maybe certain workers um i don't know but but there's there's a lot of these these things that I just want to point out that this this separation isn't extinct right it's happening right now at the negotiation tables all the time and it's up to work the the unions to stop that regardless of what what the line is of those um You know, Alana,
1: Alana, I just I just need to I just want to support what you said, because for a brief time in the 1980, I got hired. um, Well, I worked for Burlington Northern Railroad. That was a prime example of a tiered union where those individuals hired after 1970 were covered by what they called the Blue Book and those hired prior to 1970 were covered by the orange book and, and when you look at that time frame and you look at you look at the history of railroads and when they kind of moved away from passenger freight to just freight the railroads provided uh, middle class living and an income For many blacks throughout the United States, especially here in the Twin Cities and the St. Paul, you know, many folks were porters and others that worked for the railroads until they did away with passenger freight. But what happened is a lot of those white porters who worked for the railroad moved inside the building and became clerks. But none of the porters and none of those black railroad workers were afforded that same opportunity. And when you look at that time frame, that's where that tier came in. Because when we were hired in the 80s, they hadn't hired for almost 10 years. And they started to hire more people of color. Not huge because I mean we I could count the number on one hand but they were hiring new ones but we were covered by a different a different tiered coverage than the ones that had been there you know in the 30s 40s 50s or whatever so that that's a great example of what you're talking about um
4: and well, I just and wanted to make. I just want to break in real quick, real quick, just to respond to that, because, you know, um, it's interesting that you bring that up. My grandfather was a was a red cap. Right. And and so, you know, um, there there was a union that allowed that that allowed black folks to work in, in railroads in a way that they had. They didn't really have opportunities in other industries. You know, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, um, and so um that that's that's just exactly so relevant, right? In in that statement. I but I do know that you had more to finish. Not really. I
1: was going to take a breath cuz I can see Daniel gearing up over here. You know, I know people can't see, you know, we're we're doing we're recording our podcast via Zoom, so we can at least see each other, but I see Daniel gearing up also. There was one other correlation or one other thing that I was going to mention, and that is, is that historically, when we have seen success in various different arenas, for instance, unions, when we have seen success, like um, the incredible movement, the incredible response, unfortunately, to the death of, of, of George Floyd, where we saw millions of people begin to talk about systemic racism right i mean this was rolling off the lips of of white folks who when we used to try to explain it to them 10 15 20 years ago and their eyes would roll in their head right and they'd get this blank look now now this language was coming out of their mouth i think the thing that i'm trying to point out however is that whenever we see this we always see a corresponding backlash Right. So we've seen this push to make these systemic changes, but now we're seeing a backlash. Um, You know, the efforts that go into unionizing um, to 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 organize unions um, have to be, you know, are very similar to the efforts I think that went in to help St. Paul residents get that bill passed for rent control. Right. Now we're seeing a backlash with possible legislation coming out. And I know this is taking us off a little bit, but I'm just making a correlation. We're seeing this backlash because now there's bills being introduced to make it uh, um, to make it impossible for local municipalities, cities and states To be able to pass those laws on their own, the state's going to step in and say, you can't do that anymore. That that to me is a similar issue to labor because it's protecting the landlords against the renters. I mean, so we have the same dynamic happening here and we're seeing that backlash. Don.
3: I just want to say, man, you're making me think, and I'm like, breathing <laughs> over over here, because I'm like, yes, you're speaking truth to power, and you're making me think about. Ibram X X Kendi talks about in in his book, one of his books, about how when whenever there's racial progress, there's also racist progress, which is what you're getting at, right? Um, like the goalpost keeps getting moved further ahead, especially for for black and brown folks and indigenous folks. Like once we've arrived, it was the bachelors. Now we need a master's. Now we need a PhD. Now we need this, right? It just keeps getting moved. Um, But there is progress. And I think the other thing that you made me think about, it's like, this is why having an analysis of structural oppression and, and systemic racism, but racism is not the only oppressive force in this world, right? There's so much... I'm not going to curse, but um, there's so much ish in this world. Right. Um, and so I think th- th- being grounded in systemic oppression or, or the analysis of it is so critical for any leader, um, because I will say, first of all, we as people of color have not had our shared represent our fair share of representation, You know, you look at Congress and it's hella white. You look at municipalities, hella white. And I said that I wasn't gonna curse, but anyway, keep going, right? But um, anyway, so we have not had black and brown indigenous people in positions of power that represents our fair share in the population. And I also know that as a brown man in this country who was undocumented and who was told to achieve the American dream, I was almost hijacked into white supremacy and capitalism. And I'm not free from all that ish, but I'm saying I was turning into the model minority. And so thankfully I had people who grounded me again into what it is to be a human being in this world, fighting against oppression. And then I got grounded again because I I say this, representation is a huge critical step in actually achieving, right? Collective bargaining power. And we also need to be grounded on analysis of oppression because any of us can be hijacked into perpetuating white supremacy or capitalism or the Hunger Games of life, what I call, you know, and I think it's, it's this piece of like, if we are um, if we are kept from power and we are power hungry, hopefully to make it right. To actually advocate for people's uh, betterment and better life and working conditions, that's great. But if it's power for just notoriety or self, that can quickly be detrimental to any of us.
0: The points, Daniel and and, uh, Don, that you just just made reminds me of a quote. Every system is intrinsically designed to render the results it's intended to get, which means it works for you now. And then let's redesign the system because we don't want it to work for you. We want it to work for us, right? And so that will continue to morph until time in memoriam, until we get um, the right leaders, the correct leaders in place uh, that have the same values that we've been discussing here. Uh, we're, we're up on time. And the closing question for, for our guests is along the lines of, Representation. You know, both of you have raised this, Don and Anthony. You've raised it as well in our segment today. Um, what is your message to our 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 listeners who are BIPOC who uh, have never thought about unionizing or don't know where to start? Uh, what what wisdom? What kernels of wisdom can you share with them in terms of motivating them, inspiring them to go beyond what their limits uh, might be in their own mind uh, to get to a better place in terms of workplace conditions as well as wages?
4: Well, I guess, you know, um, the first thing I would say is that as a worker, especially in a, in, a, in a large, if you're in a large employee in a large place with a lot of other workers, you're probably not experiencing the things that you're experiencing that make you want to unionize on your own. Right. Maybe you don't know that other folks are also experiencing those things. But the the work the um the workers are all experiencing these things, and we've been told, we've been indoctrinated that we don't talk about these negative experiences, but it's so important that we discuss these negative experiences amongst those who may be having these same negative experiences, especially, right? And so, you know, the first thing I would say is Find somebody you trust. You don't want to like shout it at the off the rooftops, right, that you're unionizing, because uh, as we've seen at Amazon and other employers, they don't like that. But if you uh, find folks that you trust, have discussions with them, let them know what's important to you um, and, and find what what you share, those shared um, interests, those shared experiences. That is the kind of the first step. That's kind of how how it gets started. Like this is important because, you know, and you don't even have to leave it at the pay or at the, you know, um, work experiences, but bring it home. What How does it how does it impact you in your home life? How does it impact your family? How does it impact your your you know, we we talk about the eight, eight and eight that the that the workers right, um fought for eight hours to work eight hours to sleep and eight hours to do what you will is what I think the language was uh but we've seen that those those numbers have been skewed but how does it impact those quote-unquote eight hours to do what you will right um And, and again, like, I think you'll find that you're not the only one with these experiences and, you know, people, anger, right? Anger, um, really is one of the best fuels, right? And so the, the workers that are, um, that are being, being mistreated are often the ones that are going to want to fight with you. Oh
3: man, you asked about representation and uh, upon reflecting on how bargaining went with Minneapolis public schools, which I'm aghast, I'm still processing that trauma. I have a couples therapists and an individual therapist. I'm like, that was hella traumatic. Anyhow, but coming back to your question about representation, you know, I think for me, it's, I want to make it clear, representation is important, super important. Like if you don't have People at the table, like Alana said, who are experiencing the pummeling of oppression and saying, no, you need to stop and this is what you're doing to me. Like people who don't experience it won't be able to speak about it and actually address all of the ish that is happening to those people who many times is us who look like us. Right. Black and brown and indigenous. And so representation is super important. But I want to make it clear for me, representation It's not liberation, particularly because we must be grounded on analysis of structural oppression. And the clearest example I will say, since we touched on it a little bit, like hiring more black and brown people to the police is not going to make it non-racist. Policing at its core is racist, right? Like for people who don't know the foundation of, of the police, like it was to actually capture slaves, right? Anyway, I I don't need to go down the history rabbit hole. And I will say, at its core, policing is so racist. And so, yes, we can try to reform it. I'd prefer to abolish it. But I will say, representation is not liberation. It must be combined with being really grounded on what's at stake. And that, for me, is like all of us, all of us, are fighting against white supremacy and capitalism and just oppression overall. Gender, sex, race, housing, health, you name it. I can keep going and going and going and going. And so for me, it's a both and, right? Both and. Representation and being really grounded on the fact that we are fighting systemic forces who are making our lives hell. And many times it shows up in people. The us versus them, or like, no, only for Mexican lose. We need to leave others behind. And I'm like, nope, nope. That is not what we're supposed to do. This is not like siding with the master, right? To get extra plate of food while everybody else starves. I'm like, no, overthrow the damn master and claim the house. And you know what? He gets to work for his salary too. And he gets to earn his living just like all of us right? Because nobody needs to be left behind.
4: And I will say, too, and I'm sorry, I know that we're <laughs> short on time, but I will say, too, that it's so important that we even black and brown folks work and check ourselves for our white supremacy, because, you know, I know that I've been raised in a white supremacist system. And so a lot of my first go through go to thoughts are white supremacist thoughts. Right. And and if I don't check it, because as Lou said earlier, this system is designed to to work that it's designed in the way that it's designed to work. And part of it is to make black and brown and BIPOC folks white supremacists, right? And I know that that's not the the topic of this discussion today, but it is not irrelevant wholly. But, you know, I think it's so important to discuss that, um, that, We have to check ourselves because we're we have been indoctrinated, and so I know Daniel. You talked about the the uh, the ability of white supremacy to hijack us, but it's already done that. We've got to hijack ourselves back, right, (laughs) from white supremacy. I I I see a a sequel
0: coming on. (laughs) Yes,
1: there was so much going on there, and I have to admit that. You know, because we talk among ourselves and I knew that we were going to talk about labor. And so for the past two, three days, I'm thinking labor. Well, other than the teacher strike, you know, it didn't seem that exciting to me. So when I first got involved with the conversation, I'm like, "Eh," you know, my reaction. was, And then look what happened. I mean, you know, there's so much that is underneath any one of these any one of these categories that we talk about. And so I personally find uh, my time spent with my co-host and our guest on Counter Stories enriching because there is just so much to unpack. And while I came in like, eh, I ended like, holy smokes, we're just kind of un- opening the can of this discussion.
0: To your both of your points here in closing, um white supremacy and white centrality is a mindset. It's not unique to only folks who are white. Not all white people are rooted in white supremacy and white centrality. Not all uh, BIPOC folks are free of white supremacy and white centrality, right? So these are the dissonances that we need to hold at the same time so that people understand they don't make I I don't want our listeners to make that conclusion or or an assumption and and jump to a message we're not uh, intending you to to take away, which is white supremacy means all white people. That's not what we're saying. We're saying it is a mindset. And that's how this country was founded, uh, quote unquote, founded, colonized, came in and, and took the land of our indigenous brothers and sisters. And so began that white supremacy slash white centrality mindset that has been a part and baked into the systemic operations of our country. Uh, so with that um, light conclusion, <laughs> we, we will uh, bring this to a close and, and hoping to, to see all um, the, the door and the welcome mat is there. Door is open. Uh, welcome you back. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias. Uh, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota, any comments and opinions I've held and expressed are strictly my own and should not be associated with my employer.
1: I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians.
2: I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group.
4: I'm Alana Galloway, uh, uh, director of organizing and training at the IFO Interfaculty Organization and a labor organizer.
3: Uh, I'm Daniel Perez, school social worker with Minneapolis Public Schools, and I'm a Minneapolis resident.
0: Thank you both for your time, your insight, your wisdom today. Uh, And as I said, the welcome mat is there and the door is open for you to return. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew. The Other Media Group, and Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.